if you could create heaven on earth, what would it look like? Heaven on earth, what would it look like? This has been, in fact, the quest of men and women for centuries to bring heaven down to earth, to sort of create it in the here and now. And for some, that's been a vision of a, of a classless, even a godless society. So for philosophers like Marx and Engels, heaven is brought down to earth when distinctions are eradicated, be it in class or in private property or land and rents. Right? Give the working people control and they'll have no need for God. That was sort of the Marxist vision of, of heaven on earth. But for others, worshiping God is actually at the center of heaven on earth. So for the Puritans who signed the Mayflower Compact, they, they came here to the New World in part to bring about a sort of heaven on earth. Their vision was actually not one of a, of a godless and a classless society, but rather a society where industry and ingenuity was rewarded, where there, were, there was property and there were profits and freedoms to worship God according to the dictates of one's own conscience. For many students this week, perhaps heaven on earth looks a lot like a society that would prioritize student safety right over Second Amendment liberties. And if you were watching basketball, there, is the student, there were the students at UMBC this Friday night, and heaven on earth, well, maybe that came a little early, as that number 16th seed, the, the retrievers, not the most intimidating of mascots, you have to admit. The retrievers, right? They stunned the top-ranked Virginia Cavaliers, not just beating them, but blowing them out by 20 points. Never happened, a 16 seed upsetting a number one seed, maybe the biggest upset in college basketball. Friday night, those retrievers were golden. <laughs> yeah, I know, I just had to get that one out. Yeah, perhaps a little heaven on earth for them. Okay, various views. I wonder what you think it would look like. And maybe even more to the point, does God have a vision? Right? Does God have a vision of heaven on earth? And if so, what is it like? What's it like? Well, friends, this brings us to our final study in the book of Joshua, this Old Testament book. We've been in the past few weeks. I'd invite you to turn there now. If you're using one of the, the red Bibles we have in the seat back before you, you can find that on page 188, page 188. And yes, we will be in chapters 13 through 24 this morning. So get ready to flip through those Bibles. You're going to want to have them open. And given the length of our passage, what I want us to first do is sort of survey the train I want to walk you through these 12 chapters, give you a sense for the story, and then I want us to ask really three questions that will help get us to the point of our text. Three questions. The first question, what's heaven on earth like? What is heaven on earth like? First question. Second question, what happened to heaven on earth? What happened to heaven on earth? And then third can we find heaven on earth again? So can we find heaven on earth again? So what's heaven on earth like? What happened to heaven on earth? And can we find it again? Now just to the overview, if you've missed some of the earlier messages, the Old Testament book of Exodus right, records how God led Israel out of Egypt 
and prepared to lead her into the promised land. And as we come to Joshua, we're right at those borders where he's going to lead them in. And the book is sort of comprised of three major movements, if you will. And those movements are punctuated by sort of key distinct Hebrew verbs. That first movement we saw, chapters 1 through 5, right, that's the preparation to enter the land. That first movement, preparation, and that, that key word is crossover. Chapter 6 to 12, we count the occupation of the land. And there that key verb is, is to take or to capture. So preparation, occupation, and now we come to this sort of final movement, this third movement, chapters 13 to 24, and that records the division, right? the divisions of the land. And not surprisingly, the key word is divide. We see over and over. And if you're looking in your Bibles, chapter 13, where we start this morning, chapter 13 begins by summarizing the division of the land sort of for the, the two and a half tribes that are east of the Jordan River. That's chapter 13. Then the next six chapters, 14 to 19, they summarize the division of the land that's west of the Jordan River. This is sort of the property that Israel had largely conquered and yet hadn't quite taken, taken a hold of and appropriated. And we pick up, if you look, Joshua 14, verse 1. Look there, Joshua 14, verse 1. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the high priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. So just notice there, the, the scene, it doesn't open with sort of various agents and lawyers and sort of mortgage brokers all gathering at, you know, at a title company. No, so just as the conquest, as that conquest wasn't going to be first about military tactics, or think back to Jericho, so the division would not be calculated according to sort of the negotiating tactics of, of the various tribes amongst one another. What we're having, what we see in chapter 14 even is a spiritual ceremony. You've got the appropriate religious representatives there as a witness to what God, what he has apportioned by lot for his people. So then bracketing these chapters 14 to 19, you've got two special allocations there. First to Caleb in the beginning of chapter 14, closing with Joshua at the end of chapter 19. You wonder why, why Caleb and Joshua? It's because those two men were the two faithful ones. Forty years prior, as Israel came to those borders and they were sent out as spies, those were the two spies who said, we can do it. With the Lord's help, we can take the land. The rest of them cowered, and the people cowered, and hence the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. But those two had been faithful. And so they're, they're given the land as a special reward. And that's because inheriting the land, it was always about trusting in God's promises. Not their own physical strength, not their own courage, not their own capabilities. Okay, then inside those, those border stories, you have the allocation of the remaining nine and a half western tribes. And the centerpiece really picks up there, chapter 18, where the Israelites, they gather at Shiloh, again at the tent of meeting, just underscoring the religious element of this allocation. And there we see that the ark, which like Israel had been wandering about in the wilderness, the ark was also going to receive an allotment. The ark itself, ark of God, was going to have a home. It too would have a home. 
Chapters 20 and 21 then fill in the missing pieces. You had the cities of refuge described in chapter 20. The cities, the Levites, the priests, who don't get a special allotment of land but are given cities and pastures. That's chapter 21. And then it concludes with the beautiful verses. Look there now. Chapter 21, turn with me. Chapter 21, verse 43 to 45. Chapter 21, verses 43 to 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord God had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Friends, in many respects, that's sort of the climactic moment of the book. Right? God has done it. He has done it all. He has, he has led them. He has fought for them. He's blessed them. And all that remains is now for Israel to retain the land, not to lose what God has so graciously bestowed. And that's the focus of the final chapters, verses, or rather chapters 22 to 24. And those chapters dominated by three speeches of Joshua, all which call Israel to be strong and courageous, to not turn aside to the right or to the left, to make sure that they do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses. And friends, if that sounds at all familiar, it's because those are the very same exhortations God gave to Joshua chapter 1, Joshua now just transferring those to the people at the close of the book. And the book ends in the same way it begins. It ends at a graveside. This time it's not Moses' grave, this time it's Joshua's grave. And so marks the end of that era. Okay, with that overview, let's look at those questions now. Let's think about them. To our first question, what's heaven on earth like? What's heaven on earth like? Because part of what we've seen these past few weeks is that Joshua is pointing us to a picture of final rest, sort of that final promised land of which the earthly Canaan was but an earthly type. Now, it's certainly not the only picture of heaven we have in the scriptures, nor is it a complete picture. It is but a sketch, but it's a true sketch of God's people living in God's place under his rule and enjoying the blessings of rest and of peace. And so as we think about what's heaven on earth like, I want us to just notice four things from the text in particular, four things. This is going to be the longer of the three points, just a heads up, so don't fear if you're looking at your watches. Hang with me, four things. First, what's it like? I want you to see it's plentiful. Notice that it's plentiful. These chapters and chapters, and there are chapters and chapters of land allotments, well, they speak to the abundant blessing of Israel's heaven on earth. Now, if you happen to have read the chapters this week, I hope you did. I hope you used that little preaching card you're reading through. It would help you a lot for this sermon. And if you read them, you may have been thinking at some point that there is absolutely no way that Paul had these chapters in mind when he wrote that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Because we have in Joshua moved sort of from the, the riveting 
the riveting drama of a war movie, we've moved from that to the sleep-inducing monotony of one land survey after another. Nine chapters of this hill to that rock, past that brook, over that valley. He even names individual trees. I think he had Fayetteville in mind. It's all compounded, I think, by the fact that the places and the names, which just are abundant, well, we don't know where they are, let alone we don't know how to pronounce them. It all seems so foreign. And yet these chapters, they form the heart of the book, the very heart of the book. So just imagine for a moment that you're quite poor, right? Toe box or your shoes are torn off, clothes tattered hanging from your shoulders. You don't have a home, living in a shelter, little to call your own, little means to improve your own lot. And then you get word that a relative has passed, One of your relatives, a distant relative, but they've passed, and they were exceedingly wealthy. And then you learn that your name is in the will. And when you go to hear the reading of that will, do you think your mind would be wandering? Do you think you would be scrolling mindlessly through your phone? Well, not at all. You would be riveted at the reading of that will. You wanted to know, what is your inheritance? What is coming to me? What am I going to be blessed with? Every detail, you bet, of that will would matter. Well, friends, that's a bit where Israel finds herself this morning. 400 years, she suffered as slaves in Egypt. And then for another 40, wandered about in the desert. They've been living out of a dusty backpack for years, centuries. And now here they are. And it's sort of the reading of the will, and they're about to receive their inheritance. And we're not talking about some beat-up old jalopy and some rusted pots and pans. I mean, look, look down at me, chapter 15, verse 1. Look there, chapter 15, verse 1. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom, to the wilderness of Zin at the farthest south. And their south boundary ran from the end of the Salt Sea, from the bay that faces southward. It goes southward of the ascent to the Akraban Passes along to Zin, and it goes up south of Kadesh Barnea, along by Hezron, up to Adar, turns about to Karka, passes along to Asmon, goes out by the brook of Egypt, and comes to its end at the sea. This shall be your southern boundary. Okay, just pause there. A lot of places, a lot of names, but did you catch the sort of vivid and dynamic picture that the author is attempting to paint? It's as if he's beckoning us. He's, okay, grab your hiking shoes, right? We're going to go for a little hike. I'm going to show you. I'm going to speak to you about your inheritance. You're going to be up into those mountain forests. You're going to cross over that mountain into those high plains, down into the fertile pastures, right, out to the sea. He's giving them a picture of the land, And this is just, he says, the southern border of your inheritance. So we're talking an enormous tract of land to people who have been homeless for centuries. And then there are the cities, beginning in chapter 15, verse 21. And there are over 100 cities listed just for Judah alone. Cities that would have have included keys to homes and, and keys to stables and workshops and wells. 
And that's not all they get. Look forward with me, chapter 22, verse 8. Jump forward, chapter 22, verse 8. Joshua is sending home the eastern two and a half tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan, and he says to them in 22, verse 8, go back to your tents with much wealth, with very much livestock, with silver and gold and bronze and iron, and with much clothing. Are you, the, the picture is they've got non-liquid assets, lots of land and other things. They've got plenty of liquid assets as well. They have it all. Their, their trunks are overflowing, right? Camels and carts are riding real low from the weight of all the wealth, of all they've been given, of their inheritance. Friends, part of what God is trying to help us see is that he's not a stingy God. He's not a stingy God. He's, he's not tight-fisted with his people. You know, he's not the kind of God who begrudgingly tips, you know, the 15% minimum and groans as he does it. No, he showers his people. He loads blessings upon his people. He lavishes his goodness upon them. Now, that doesn't mean we should, you know, go buy a lottery ticket and expect a lot of material prosperity in this life. One of the things you come to find is that in the new covenant, those, the, the markings of, of a blessing take spiritual form, not just physical and, and material form. But that doesn't mean that God is any less gracious with us. I wonder, Christian, this morning, if you can speak personally to God's own grace in your life. Can you speak personally to it? Can you rattle off the ways he's been gracious to you? Have you considered how gracious he is simply in giving you his word? For how many have, how many have perished in the history of the world, tragically unaware of who God is, of what he's like. For how many centuries was a book like this prohibitively expensive? Never a dream of owning such a book. And yet today we can download it for free. We can carry it in our pockets, in our phones. You know, how many Christians would die and literally did die for that very privilege? I wonder if you see his grace to you in placing you in a country where the gospel can, at least still at this moment, be preached freely without fear of reprisal. Do you see his grace in giving you his spirit so that unlike the saints of old, as you read God's word, you're given the ability to obey it and to enjoy it and to understand it? Do you see his grace in giving you the family you have, the, the spiritual family in this church that you have? I could just keep going. Friends, whatever our lot, if we stop for a moment and remove the blinders of our discontent, we will see that God has been exceedingly generous to us. Every breath that we breathe, even right now, that is a gift. God doesn't owe it to us, but he gives it to us. And he gives so much more. This is the God that Joshua wants us to see. He is extravagant. He's, he's even profligate with his children. right? God's vision of heaven on earth, it's plentiful. It's abundant. But the second thing I want us to see is that it's, it's equitable. The second thing about this vision of heaven on earth, it's equitable. I wonder if you noticed, if you happen to read through the chapters this week, the kind of care the author goes to show that every tribe was apportioned an allotment, was given an inheritance. So Joshua 13 to 17 carefully deals with the allotments to the eastern tribes and then the two largest tribes, which would be Joshua and Judah. 
But what about all the little guys? You know, the little tribes, are they left out? Well, picking up at the end of chapter 18, verse 28, we read this is the inheritance of the people of Benjamin, according to its clans. 4 to 19.8, this was the inheritance of the tribe of people of Simeon, according to their clans. 19.16, this is the inheritance of the people of Zebulun, according to their clans, their cities with their villages. And he continues to go through all the tribes just to make painstakingly clear that not a single tribe is left out. All are given something, however small. You know, you may have been wondering, there's even this story in chapter 17 of Zelophehad's five daughters. Now, that guy's name is a little tough to pronounce, so we're just going to say Mr. Z's five daughters, all right? The allotment to Mr. Z's five daughters. And you wonder, why is that story stuck here in chapter 17? What's it doing in the account? Well, if you know anything about ancient Near East, land was actually transferred through sort of the male side. And the problem is Mr. Z, he didn't have any sons. He had these five daughters. And so they're not going to inherit anything when their father dies. And so Moses, back in Numbers 27, he goes to the Lord and he says, hey, what should be done about this? These women will have no place. And God says that their claims should be honored, that they too should receive an inheritance. So now jump forward a number of decades to where we are in Joshua. Now how easy it would have been for these five women, thousands of Israelites all across the land, how easy for these five women to have been ignored, right, to have been forgotten. How easily the system could have been turned against them. And yet God would be true to his word. Each one of those daughters would receive an inheritance, not one that they would have to share and split five ways, but each would get their own land, their own parcel. You know, how kind of God to give us a story like this. It's one of those sweet reminders that God, yeah, he cares about nations and and he cares about big events, but he condescends to take unique and very particular care of individual people. Care for individuals. Interest not just in the mighty and the powerful, but even interest in those who are lowly, those who are oppressed, most likely to be taken advantage of. Oh, friend, if you think God is unconcerned with your, uh, your plight, if you think he's not aware, right, you've been overlooked, you've had a system against you, so to speak. If you think God's unaware, just think of these five daughters and know there's, there's not a single person outside of God's care. And friend, there's no concern of yours that is too small for God. No concern at all. Here's the point. In God's vision of heaven on earth, everyone participates, not one will be left out. So there's going to be no cause for sort of an Occupy Wall Street kind of protest, if you think back to those protests. No Marxist class warfare between haves and have-nots in God's kingdom. That's not to say all receive the same amount, Joshua's allotment. Is going to be split amongst his sons. Judah gets a larger portion. But the point is, all are treated equitably. They're treated fairly. And yes, even very generously. And that brings us to the third thing I want us to see about this vision. Yes, it's equitable. Yeah, it's plentiful too. But it's also unified. It's unified, this this vision of heaven on earth. And particularly unified around God's word. Faithfulness to that word. That's been one of the central concerns of the book, obedience to God's word. Which is why, if you're in chapter 22, when the eastern tribes return home, they build this unsanctioned altar. 
There wasn't supposed to be an altar there, but they build it. And when the western tribes on the other side of the Jordan hear it, they gather together for war. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, the people have just settled and a civil war is already breaking out. What's happening? Well, the folks on the eastern tribes, they respond, chapter 22, verse 24. They respond to their western brothers and they say, no, but, but we, the eastern tribes, did it, i.e. built the altar, from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and Gad on the eastern side, you have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Do you see the concern of the eastern tribes? Their concern is that in some time, the western tribes would forget and they would cut off the eastern tribes from the Lord. And that altar that they erected was merely meant to be a reminder that both tribes, those on the west and those on the east, they worship the same God, the Lord of Israel. They're brothers together. And part of what is being emphasized is, is God won't have any factions. There's going to be no divisions within his body. Right? He's the God of all Israel, not just some of Israel. God's body will worship together. They will fight together. They will prosper together. Or they will fall together. Well, friend, it's a good reminder. That should be true of us as a church. You know, our unity in Christ ought to transcend all other forms of diversity that we might have, right? Be it in our gender or our age or ethnicity, our vocation, even our education. That's not to say those distinctions have no meaning. That's not to say they, they don't affect maybe how we relate to one another. But, but those distinctions shouldn't be ultimate. They shouldn't be ultimate. It's one of the reasons why, you know, if you've come and maybe you're visiting, you might wonder, you know, why don't they have like two services? Some churches do. You know, they have the contemporary later service and the, the more traditional morning service. Well, because we don't want to divide on preferences like that. We don't want to suggest that, that our musical preferences take precedent over the unity we have and the commonality in Christ we share together. It's why we want to be patient with one another when, when we're seeking to love each other as a body. We don't want to be insensitive. We want to be forbearing. Pray that as a church, just members of UBC, pray that our unity would be marked by a kind of increasing diversity too. And a diversity that would, that would mark this gathering, a diversity that would reflect the heavenly gathering one day we'll all know. You know I think one of the ways we build this unity, just an encouragement, if, if you've never come to a Sunday evening service, you know, we have them every other Sunday night, if you never come to those, that's one of the ways we try to build unity in the body. We try to share together. Hey, what's happening in the life of the body? How's the mission team doing? They got delayed, right? Are they going to be able to continue on in the work? What challenges is that created? What other ministries happening? Share testimonies of grace. Individuals able to share the gospel with neighbors. We get to talk about those things publicly. You don't just hear from me. You get to hear from many others. We get to pray for them. Part of how we build unity. Think about making that a priority on your Sunday. Well, fourthly, we see God's vision of heaven and earth. Yeah, it's plentiful, it's equitable, it's, it's unified, it's gracious. It is exceedingly gracious. You know, one of the most colorful stories in the second half of Joshua is that of Caleb in chapter 14. God's gift of Caleb in the land, you recall it sort of chapters 14 to 19, Caleb is bracketed alongside Joshua. He's given special land. And his comes first is a little bit because 
The Lord's trying to say, listen, you want to know what following me faithfully looks like? Look to this guy. Sort of the poster child for faithfulness. And that's Caleb. So look at me, chapter 14, verse 10. Look what the Lord says. This is actually what Caleb says. Chapter 14, verse 10. Now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while, I, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old, and I'm still strong today, as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is, is as my strength was then, for war and for going and for coming. So now give me this hill country, which the Lord spoke on that day so many years ago. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities, and it may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord had said. We'll stop there. You can feel in Caleb's own, in words, you can feel his vitality, right? His, his complete confidence in the Lord. So why do I say this is a picture of God's graciousness? It's because Caleb actually isn't a Jew. Caleb's not part of the Jewish people. Not naturally. He's a, he's a Kenizzite. He's actually a Gentile foreigner. A foreigner. And what land does God give to Caleb? Well, Joshua 14, 13. He gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Friends, Hebron was where Abraham and Sarah were buried. If there is a sacred site in all of Israel, like this might be it. And God and his grace doesn't take any notice of the distinctions of, of ethnicity or color. He gives it because of his faithfulness to this Gentile foreigner. Why did he do that? You know, the, the, the Anakim, they were the toughest fighters in, in all the Canaan that, that Israel was called to push out. And Caleb he knew, along with Joshua, he knew that there were no soldiers, however tough they might be, however imposing they might seem, that could stand against the God who had delivered Israel out of the Red Sea. Friend, Caleb believed in a big God, a big God, and in God's kindness, the land, the special land of Hebron was his reward. You know, one wrote, the majority trembled. The people of Israel trembled. They didn't want to go against these people. The majority trembled, but Caleb triumphed. The majority had giants, but a little God. Caleb had a great God and little giants. Friend, I wonder what your God looks like this morning. When you read the God of the scriptures, more importantly, when you live throughout your day, how big is your God? Is he big enough to deliver you? Is he big enough to meet your needs as you go through the day? Because Christian recognized you not only worship one who could walk on water, you worshiped one who walked right out of the grave. One who borrowed the tomb and then gave it back. For that's the God we worship. And there is nothing that he cannot do. Nothing he cannot do for you. You see, what God desires of us is not so much great faith, but faith that he is great. Yeah, we, do we want great faith? Yes, we do. But even more, we need faith to know that he is great. And Caleb had it. And God was gracious to him. So notice God's vision of heaven on earth. Yeah, it's plentiful. It's equitable. It's unified. It's gracious. It sounds very much like the perfect world. Who wouldn't want it? 
So to our second, and again, as I said, much briefer point, don't fret. What happened to heaven on earth? What happened to it? Well, in short, it was lost. They lost it. And we're going to see a number of small hints about how this loss is going to come. So look back, Joshua 13, verse 13. Joshua chapter 13, verse 13. We read little hints like this. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Makathites, but Geshur and Makath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Or Joshua 15, 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Or Joshua 16, 10. However, they, speaking of Ephraim, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day. Well, friend, it's verses like this that are sort of scattered throughout these chapters that work as a sort of proverbial slap in the face. They're meant to wake us up. And they're meant to say, listen, something is amiss. There's something wrong as well. God promised his people the power to to deliver the nations from among them. So, So what's happening? Well, Joshua warned the people. Look forward, chapter 23, 13. He warned them of what would happen if they would ally with the nations, make them allies. Joshua 23, 13, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. That was the consequence if they were unfaithful. And we're beginning to see with their inability to drive out some of the peoples, there was unfaithfulness growing within the midst of Israel. The implication was that they had never truly rid themselves of false worship. In other words, it looks like there's more than one Achan in their midst. If you think back to earlier chapters in Joshua, the story of Achan, there's more than one Achan in their midst. This is confirmed when we read Joshua's final farewell speech. Look forward, chapter 24, verse 14. Chapter 24, verse 14. Some of the verses that you may know from this book. Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Friends, when Joshua utters those words, he's not talking there about evangelism. This is a warning to the people about the risk of apostasy, about walking away from God. And already it seems some of God's own, they're rejecting him in favor of other gods. And it's really interesting to stop and take note, what's the choice that Joshua puts before the people? Worship either the ancient gods that your father served many, many years ago beyond the Euphrates, back in Ur, you can worship them, or you can worship the present gods of the Amorites. So that's the choice. So your ancient ancestral faith 
or modern faith that surrounds you. Those are the two choices Joshua puts before them. And friends, I don't want you to miss this, particularly if you're a high school student. I know it's spring break, a lot of people are gone, but a high school student, any college students that may still be around, I want you to particularly notice the choice here. Because friends, this is the choice that the world puts before us every single day. The world says something very similar to this. You can either follow your parents' faith, you know, their old, dead, and crusty traditions, you know, that faith, you can follow that. Or you can look to modernity, what's shiny, new, what's, what's in vogue. That's the choice you have. And of course, our modern gods today, they're not going to have forms and shapes like the gods of the Amorites, the modern gods of the day. But nonetheless, right, they have their own amulets, they have their own flags and symbols, and they have the same blessings and promises that are attached with them, right? The benefits of belonging, of meaning, right? Of sexual freedom, maybe in some kind of material prosperity attached to them. And so that's the choice. No to sort of the strange beliefs and the strange standards of your parents' old-fashioned faith or yes to the modern faith, which has no clear standards and has no clear beliefs. And of course, who wants their parents' faith? Right? Some of you are thinking, it's enough. My parents make me listen to their music in the car. And I don't need their faith. Who wants all that religion they have that's angular and has all these moral rights and wrongs? Right? So stodgy, so passe, so Victorian. How uncool is that? You know, we want to say sort of yes to the modern gods of, of the people around us. And in Christianity, what that practically means is we take Jesus, and then at the altar of our worship, alongside Jesus, we start to put up our modern gods, just like Israel had started to do. And so we'll say, yes, Jesus. And then we'll say, yeah, his message, though, it's also, it's, it's about love and acceptance. It's not just judgment. He embraces us all as we are. He doesn't condemn us. You know, Jesus, he challenged all the prevailing and parochial views of his day, and we should do that just like him. Or we could just keep going. But friends, what I want you to see is God won't have it. Joshua says right after Joshua 24, 19, the Lord, he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. Not jealous in a kind of resentful or, or vindictive way, but jealous in a protective way in a vigilant sense. He's, he's jealous of his own honor. He asks and he expects exclusive love and exclusive loyalty because he's God. He alone is God and he alone is good. God's not gonna share himself with any other. So when we take Jesus and we put up all our modern gods at the altar of our worship alongside him, we're saying to God, yeah, I really want an open relationship here. I want you, but I want these other partners as well. Can we have that kind of a relationship? In which, understandably, God says, no. No. It is me, or it is nothing. And friend, in so many ways, we're just like Israel. Right? We want to we wanna hold on to God with one hand, and then we want to hold on to the world and all of its promises and all of its little gods as well. You know, we would prefer to make peace with our own wickedness rather than sort of wage war for righteousness. In Israel, in that, they sowed the seeds of their own destruction and the storm clouds that are coming in the book of Judges, 
right in the next book, those storm clouds are already gathering on the horizon. So let's close with our final question. Can we find heaven on earth again? Can we find heaven on earth again? As I said at the outset, this is humanity's quest. Marx is communism, Hume's relativism. We, we, we know this world plentiful, equitable, unified. Right? Who wouldn't want this kind of a world where goodness and justice reign? Deep down, we long for that world. We sense it. We feel in our own souls we were made for another world. We were made for a better world than this world. We want to get back there. But friends, only God can give it. Right? Only God is the way. Because in that dichotomy I created a moment ago of the ancient versus the modern, you notice that's how Joshua sets it up. It's how the world communicates to us. But that's actually not the decision tree that Joshua puts before us. He gives us a third option. It doesn't just have to be the ancient dead faith of your ancestors or the modern faith that you're surrounded by. He gives us a third option. One the world so often misses, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, heaven isn't found in the dead faith of our ancestors. It's not found in the modern faith that has no clear answers, but in a living and in a real and a vibrant faith, one that Joshua calls us to, a living faith and a relational faith with a living and a relational God. That's where Joshua points them. Friends, that's where everlasting life has always been found. And he holds it out to us. God's even holding out to us as a type here in Joshua, more clearly as we come to Christ, Jesus himself, the one who would perfectly obey where Israel had failed. The Jesus who himself also was tempted by other gods, tempted by Satan himself, and yet he didn't make peace with them, he made war against them. The paradise that we lost, that Israel lost, this is what he won back through his righteous life. And the curse of sin that rests on our lives. This is the curse that he bore on his body on the tree. We read just a few minutes ago of the whips and the thorns upon the brows from Joshua 23. That's the curse that would come to all who would, who would make allies of this world. Friends, that's what Jesus bore on the cross, the curse of our sin. He alone lived on earth for us. He alone paved the way. So friend, if you've come and you're not a follower of Christ, as Jesus knows your heart. He knows your struggles. He knows your needs. He alone has the power to deal with broken and rebellious hearts. He alone can bring you peace with God. Only he can do it. So he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, we didn't talk about the cities of refuge in chapter 20, but, but like those cities whose gates were never shut, Jesus calls out and he says, whoever comes to me, I won't drive you away. I won't drive you away. He's given us heaven on earth in his son. And we have a taste of that place now, today in the church, the Israel of God. It is imperfect, yes, but it is the beginning. It's a taste. But even that's meant to point us to something greater. Because Jesus promises a day. He ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, as God gave Israel, look lastly, last text we're going to read, Joshua 24, verse 13. Joshua 24, 13. Just as God gave Israel land 
on which you did not toil, cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Oh, friend, I want you to see Jesus is now preparing a place for us, a place that we did not build, gardens that we have not tended. And that's just not an imaginary place in our own hearts. It's a real place. It is a physical place of abundance and blessing for those who have made peace with God through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. It's a city of refuge waiting for us, a city whose gates we read in Revelation are never shut. Why are they never shut? Because there's no more sin. There's no more threat. It's peace. This is the new heavens. This is the new earth that awaits God's people in Christ. Friend, the only remaining question is, will it be yours? Friends, will this be yours? Is that hope yours? Will that place, will that be your inheritance? Let's pray.